Kia ora, and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. How we love. Clementine Ford is one of Australia's most fearless feminists, and possibly one of its most provocative. The author of the best-selling Fight Like a Girl and Boys Will Be Boys has been an ardent champion for girls and women, a fierce critic of toxic masculinity and the target of extraordinary vitriol, which from time to time has elicited incendiary responses that she has later regretted. Her new book, How We Love, Notes on a Life, is an exploration of how love makes its home in our heart and the act of faith and bravery required to surrender ourselves to it. She joins Madeline Chapman for this special session to reflect on her work past, present and future, supported by Platinum Bold patron, Teresa Gatting. I thought I'd do something incredibly clever. I was like filming as I walked on. I was like, it's gonna be so great to post to Instagram and I feel like uh, I overestimated myself. <laughs> and then I got shy and hit the phone. You can cheer soon, I'm about to do an intro for you. <laughs> no mai harimai, talo falava, alo ingoa or Madeline Chapman, I'll be your chair this evening. Before we start, uh, some quick housekeeping. Please turn your phones off or silent or turn off your 9pm alarm that you have on. We may or may not do questions at the end, we'll just see how we go for time but uh, Clementine will be signing books afterwards, so you can have a very brief chat with her then, if you would like. So thank you all for coming out on a weeknight after 8 p.m., that's impressive. And special thank you to Platinum patron of the festival, Teresa Gatting, who supported this session. We're all here to see an author, journalist, podcaster who is both inspired and angered with her work and is one of the most known feminists, though at this point it feels a bit redundant to use that word, I think, in the world. She's written three books, Fight Like a Girl, Boys Will Be Boys, and most recently, How We Love, which is a memoir of sorts based around relationships in her life. So we won't be able to cover everything this evening, but we'll do our best. Could you please join me in welcoming Clementine Ford. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, thank you. And also, can we have a big round of applause, please, for Madeline Chapman, <laughs> who I adore. Uh, and it is so great to be here for the Writers' Festival. Thank you so much for having me, Tamaki Makoto. It's, it's really, it's really um, just a thrill and a pleasure to be anywhere that's not Melbourne after COVID, uh, but especially here because I love, I love being in this country and amongst all of you fine folk. So thank you, and thank you, Mads, for doing this. I, I appreciate it, and I love you. Oh, thank you, I love you too. And that's our show, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Uh, I've actually interviewed you before. You have, you have a very special interview. In fact, that was when you were uh, channeling 
Dr. Jordan Peterson. Yes, I was. It was, uh, it was 2018. I was eating only beef for a week, which was um, Jordan Peterson's diet. And Clementine happened to be coming in for a podcast recording. And so I managed to wrangle her into a video where I argued as Jordan Peterson and you argued as Clementine Ford. You know, honestly, like, not a lot of wrangling was involved <laughs> because I love any kind of comedy jape. And that was a jape. And I was just saying to Mads backstage that... Backstage. <laughs> I was just saying to Mads backstage that uh, <laughs> I've had Jordan Peterson acolytes and men's rights activists, which I feel like... <sighs> Men's rights activists, I mean, it's like such a misnomer because it's not about men's rights, is it? It's about men's delusion. Men's delusion activists sent me that video with like a commentary along the lines of feminist destroyed by Jordan Peterson logic. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, God, you guys don't even get when the, you don't even get when it's actually a joke. <laughs> yes, I, that video has, 300,000 views on YouTube. It is our most downvoted video we've ever most posted. Most downvoted. Um, well, but then it's a massive success. Yeah, and it, it does get reposted by fans of Jordan Peterson <laughs> saying, and I guess fans of me now, <laughs> um, just really loving my arguments. Well, you're one of the good ones. You know, you get it. Thank you. Get you. It. Thank you. But he's, he's Woman now become... Woman fe slams feminism. Yeah, that was, for the, that was the title, basically. Yeah. He's now become a bit of like a walking, talking meme, and there's all these former fans of Peterson kind of moaning and saying, oh, he's become what they said he was. How do you feel as sort of his number one kind I mean, of counterpart? Become, become it, just... Look, I, it's so easy to make fun of Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. <laughs> I have to say the doctor because they'll, otherwise they'll remind you that he can't yeah. possibly be wrong because he's an <laughs> academic. Um, it's so easy to make fun of him because he's just absolutely ridiculous. But the problem with Jordan Peterson is that he... And look, I'm going to share a joke here that's not my joke. I originally heard it said about Pauline Hanson, who's this horrendously racist politician. <laughs> <sighs> the fact that she's a senator again is just... In, I mean, Australia is just awful. Um, but I heard someone describe her voice in this way once, and equal opportunity means that I need to describe Dr. Jordan B. Peterson's voice like this too. Mm -hmm. And that is that they always sound like, the voice always sounds like the moment just between when you've dropped the glass and the glass hits the ground. <laughs> and that is such an accurate portrayal of Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. <laughs> Why, how could we say that we don't need men? Look at the things, look at all of the things that men do around the world. A man invented the tampon. Which also, one. I think we talked about this when we did that interview, like Jordan, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson and all of his fans love to say that a man invented the tampon. And Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, the incredible academic who can't possibly be wrong because he's an academic, has literally used the argument that patriarchy can't exist because a man invented the tampon. <laughs> now, even if that 
had any kind of remote basis in logic, we know that individual men can be invested in the liberation of women and all people oppressed by disadvantage and marginalization. But also, a man didn't fucking invent the tampon. <laughs> for a start, people who bleed have been managing their menstruation for millions of years. Have humans been alive for millions of years? I'm not an academic, obviously. <laughs> Thousands of years. Thousands of years we've been managing our menstruation. But this, the guy that he fucking points to as having invented the tampon, that whole story is that he was in LA visiting his friend who was a menstruator, and she was like, oh yeah, I've got my period. Here's this thing that I've fashioned to like, deal with it that's not like a pad with a belt. And he was like, hmm, I wonder if I can steal that idea and monetize it. And he did, and he ended up selling the patent for it for $32,000, which was a lot of money at the time. I think it's the equivalent of like 150,000 maybe from memory, but I, I could be wrong on that. Uh, but it was definitely 32,000 at the time. So he didn't invent it, he just capitalized on it. The idea that like someone, a cis man who has never experienced a period would invent a contraption that would help <laughs> people who have historically experienced periods and pass that knowledge down between each other is just fucking ludicrous. And that is the session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I was just about to say, Jordan Peterson is just a footnote in history now, because we've got a lovely young man by the name of Andrew Tate, who is on our shores. Obviously, a lot of fans in the crowd. Um, <laughs> obviously, catering to a slightly younger generation, also now across a different platform, which is TikTok, platform that scares me as somebody who is not that much older than people who use it. Um, it terrifies me as well, you're not alone. He's, well, so he's been booted there. off. He's been booted off everything. Does that mean we have made some sort of progress? Uh, I'd love to be optimistic about it, but no, because I think that the market forces have responded to public discord in a way that benefits them. It's exactly the same as, you know, Meta, which we all know as Facebook and Instagram, but let's just for the sake of things call it Meta. Meta was one of the companies that, um, along with Amazon, whose you know, creator and boss and CEO we know is the first fucking trillionaire in the world. And if, you, if, there are no if there is no such thing as a good billionaire, there is definitely no such thing as a good trillionaire. And <laughs> Side note, I remember having a little argument with a friend slash person I went to university with who ended up working at Amazon in Seattle. And I like this person, they're very smart, but they also clearly drank the Amazon Kool-Aid. And when I said something about Jeff Bezos being like an inherently terrible person because you can't be a good person if you're a billionaire, that's just the rule. He was like, well, you know, he started that business out of his garage and he still pays himself $80,000 a year salary. And I'm like, he pays himself an $80,000 a year wage so that he doesn't have to pay tax. What, out of what part of his $80,000 a year salary does he pay for his private jet? So all of these companies, when the Supreme Court uh, basically overturned Roe v. Wade, by the way, I'm wearing my 
everybody knows I had an abortion t-shirt tonight. Um, when the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade and left it, left it into the hands of the states, which I love that kind of little moment of gaslighting that happens from conservatives where they're like, well, they didn't overturn it. They just get, they left it up to the states. It's like, what do you think is gonna happen in fucking Florida? You know, well, obviously not Kansas, they took care of it. But if you don't know, Kansas put it to a, a public vote for the people and the people were like, you're not fucking taking abortion away from us. Um, all of those companies were like, well, well, we'll pay, we'll pay for abortion leave for our staff. And it's a, it's a gesture that is meant to make them look like they care about people who can become pregnant, which will mostly be women, but not always. Um, and I make that specification because it is important to acknowledge that not only cis women are the ones who get pregnant, but the reason these oppressive, you know, these oppressive forces and legislation is in place is because of patriarchal oppression of women, and patriarchy insists on a binary. So we need to, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge that pregnancy doesn't impact just women and it doesn't take anything away from me as someone who's given birth to, to talk about like birthing people. I don't care about the language that we, that we use. I care about being inclusive and, and representative of anyone who can become pregnant against their will and have that choice taken away from them or have to deal with the system of uh, you know, medicalized birth, which I'm not wholly opposed to. I had a medicalized birth because I needed it because I would have died otherwise, but who also you know, suffer birth injuries. Like, we need to acknowledge that that affects all people who are capable of giving birth. But the oppression comes from wanting to oppress women. And when you have these companies that are like, well, we provide, we'll provide this medical leave for anyone who wants to have an, ab an abortion, you're like, well, you're only doing that because you want to have your workers on the floor still. Amazon doesn't care about people who can become pregnant. They just want to make sure that they maintain their workforce. So when you talk then about like all of these platforms banning Andrew Tate, do they care about you know tackling misogyny now? Clearly not. They just understand that the the not even the winds of change, but the winds of change on this particular issue were like he is not a moneymaker for us, and we will continue to platform views just like his. And also, the next Andrew Tate, who is or the next ten Andrew Tates who are currently building their own platforms on TikTok and Instagram and whatever other social media platform we're waiting to be like terrified by, they're preparing themselves and, and they're not being opposed. So I sort of feel quite demoralized by it and I take pleasure in the fact that this one individual despicable human has had his avenues of some of his avenues of income taken away from him and he's been globally kind of humiliated. I think we can all take pleasure in that. But I don't think that getting rid of him is like, great, we've solved misogyny on social media. <laughs> I mean, the fact that like, a, there's just too many men who are able to share these really reprehensible views and position them in ways now that are like, well, it's just, it's just a podcast, it's just free speech, you know? It's like this video that I watched this morning of this, it's like one of the worst things I've ever seen, but he clearly felt so emboldened to just say it. It was like this 65 or 70-year-old man who was talking on a podcast, because as soon as you put a microphone in front of a cis man, they're like, oh yeah. 
People are going to love what I have to say. <laughs> and he's talking about his preference for, I'm sorry, like content note for graphic descriptions of young women slash late teenagers. But he's like, oh, I just, I just love it when, I love it when they're hairless and they've just got like a little slit. And you're like, what the fuck is going on? How can TikTok claim to have like gotten rid of misogyny by banning Andrew Tate videos and yet just allow men to start accounts? <laughs> like they should need a license to be given a microphone. <laughs> I'm serious. This book. <laughs> This book, Boys Will Be Boys, which I'm assuming a lot of you have read, came out in 2018. Do you think it has aged well is not the right word? Is there stuff that you would, if it were to be published today, take out, put in, change? I think that with feminist, I mean, presumably all nonfiction writers feel this if they're writing to a particular topic and a particular uh, project for change. Presumably they all do, or at least should, feel as the years go by that there are ideas that they didn't fully explore or, um, you know, approaches that they, that they would take differently now because we're in the, the blessed thing about living in today's day and age with social media is that we are all so privileged to be able to learn, excuse me, to be able to learn from so many different groups that have historically been silenced and have historically been denied the right to advocate for themselves. So I think that any feminist writer should be willing, and I hope I'm I hope that I do this, I try, but I, I'm, you know, I'm an imperfect, I'm an imperfect person. Um, but I think that we should all be willing to critically reflect on our, on the, I almost said blind spots, but it's like critically, it's like that learning in motion, you know, that these things that, you don't say blind spots anymore because it's ableist. And so we should be able to critically reflect on the things that we didn't articulate properly the learning that we didn't do fully, and the like, the passion or the advocacy that was misplaced. So obviously, I can't think of anything in particular that I would, you know, there's nothing that screams to me when I think of that book. Fight Like a Girl, maybe there's some things that I, you know, that was my first feminist book. I was 35, which is old enough to know better, but early enough in the kind of, as I said, the privileged understanding of mass information available all at once. That if I rewrote that now, or if I went and did a re, uh, you know, like if I did a, a, an updated version, there's things that I would probably not necessarily change, but reword or caveats that I would include. Um, and even just things like the awareness that we have, you know, for, so for example, with Boys Will Be Boys, I think I, I think I made it clear the perspective that I was coming from and where I was kind of located in the world as a white cis person, white cis woman, um, who had really just like, uh, you know, a context of Western masculinity and was hopefully trying to speak mostly about white cis het Western masculinity. 
But there may be things that I go back and look at and think, well, I could be clearer about the fact that, you know, like today I was talking about that, um, everyone loves to quote Margaret Atwood, that women are afraid that, no, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and men are afraid that women, sorry, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. And on its surface, that's like a compelling statement, you know, it's, if you're a woman, you've been afraid that a man will kill you. And if you're a man, you've probably been afraid that a woman will laugh at you. But we know contextually that there are a lot of men in the world who are really afraid that people will kill them. Black men are afraid that cops will kill them. And gay men are afraid that homophobic people will kill them. Trans men are afraid that transphobic people will kill them. So I think that the more we kind of move through this privileged space of learning, and if you are open to the privilege that it is to learn from other people, the more you, you have to accept that your, your understanding of the world will change. And it's, a, it's an incredible gift to be able to write a book and put it into the world and have people read it. But it does freeze your thinking in one moment in time. And to not be able to kind of, I guess, go back and revisit that and say, I would change this or I would extrapolate on this or I would make this clearer, I think doesn't do the work any service. I mean, I think you're quite prolific on Twitter, which is an ever-evolving... Ever uh... I'm not as prolific on Twitter anymore since I wrote a certain tweet. Well, I was going to ask about that. So as, somebody who is, as someone who is, has been talked about as being very unapologetic and never shy of combat, what is it like when you suddenly are making the wrong people angry and kind of being made to kind of look inward on a very well-intentioned but very forcefully put opinion? When you say the wrong people, who do you mean? I mean, I, I remember when I started writing opinion myself and obviously people get mad and then I got some good advice which was, if you're making the right people mad, it shouldn't stress you out. But if you're making the wrong people mad, i.e. the people who you're trying, you, you know, you're wanting to support, essentially, yeah. um, that's where you may need to stop and, and listen. So I feel like you're very good at making the right people mad, i.e. the doctors, uh, Peterson, <laughs> but obviously at some point you're gonna make the wrong people mad, and I think you have referenced that just now. What was that in terms of processing it? Oh, I've actually, despite best intentions, I've kind of mm. done what I was rallying against. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I've, not, not that I'm being argumentative at all, I promise. I, when I think of that kind of concept of like making the wrong people mad, it's, it's more, it's more that I think of it that I've, I've really hurt people. You know, it's not about making them mad because when we say about, when we say things like making someone mad, it plays into this idea of individualistic indignation, that you can, you can be indignant about someone being mad at you and our 
our culture, and particularly white culture, really encourages that. It encourages indignation so that no one ever has to be accountable for what they've done or said. And so I never think about it as being like making people mad when it's, you know, the, the people ostensibly who you're trying to, you know, work with. I always think about it as I've failed in a duty of care or I've failed in a, I failed to do what I ask other people to do, which is be reflective and be thoughtful and be progressive. And it doesn't, you know, I'm going to sound a little bit like a, um, it's going to sound insincere when I say this, but I, I, if you interpret it that way, then that's, that's your call. But I always feel like when I let people down in that way, I always feel like I've, um, I feel it like I've, I've failed to articulate myself properly and I've, I've stumbled once again into that realization that unlearning privilege will be like a lifelong task for me. When I say stumbled into it, I don't mean that I kind of like prance around not expecting that, but because I just assume all the time that I'm, like in the same way that I would say to cis het men, when you wake up in the morning, you have to assume that you're operating in a sexist environment. And you have to assume that you're a beneficiary of sexism. So you need to just, like your approach can't just be, well, I'm a good guy. I'm not sexist, so therefore I never have to do anything. You have to assume that you're sexist inherently and assume that you will perpetuate sexism and misogyny and be accountable for it. And um, I feel like that's something that I wasn't as aware of and that, you know, the systems that we live in relied on me not being aware of when I was younger and in my 20s and we didn't have as much access to these open conversations. But now I, I do, I was gonna say I accept but again, like, I, th I, I think very carefully about the language that I use. And I don't accept that I'm racist, but I understand that as a white person raised in white supremacy, and particularly in a colonialist, genocidal country like Australia, I inherently benefit from racism. And I, I can be oblivious to it because that's what the system needs me to be, is oblivious to it. So I have to wake up every day and say, I am a racist person because that's what the system wants me to be. And so I have to work every day to not be a racist person. And I don't always succeed, not in overt ways, I don't think, but I think in those kind of subliminal ways that you make a joke that you think is, is acceptable or you think is kind of like being ironic or whatever, and you realize, actually, my ironic joke is it lands badly because I'm white. And I made this joke thinking that we can make this joke together, but it doesn't work the same way, in the same way that like a, a super like right on cis guy making a joke about misogyny doesn't always land. And you have to, I mean, I'm using a very basic example there, obviously, but I think that one of the best, <sighs> One of the best realizations I had, and it was through the work of, you know, people I admire, writers like Nayuka Gori, um, 
uh, writers like Roxanne Gay, um, activists who challenge, you know, activists of colour and also First Nations activists who challenge white people every day on their behaviour, was that I don't need to be... I don't need to be, like, accepted as one of the good ones. Because I can't ever be accepted as one of the good ones, you know? Like, there's always going to be an inherent suspicion of me, particularly from First Nations women in Australia. They're always going to be inherently suspicious of me as a white woman. And I don't, I don't need to push back against that. Like, I, that's, that is, that's the reality, and that's the privilege that I hold as someone who benefits from a white supremacist colonialist system there that I need to be conscious of trying to challenge in my work in a way that's not silencing, but that also I don't get, like, indignant about. It comes back to that idea of indignation, that indig indignation prevents us from actually being better people and just accepting I've fucked up. I've done, I've said this thing that's fucked, or I've like held this view that's wrong. And whatever the, whatever the consequence of that is, I, I accept that. I don't, it's not about accepting that you're a bad person, but it's accepting the consequences of being this person in this system. And just trying your best every day to be part of the supportive change that you know, people at the front lines are working so hard and suffering much greater consequences than you to deliver. So in that sense, do you, if you say you don't feel like you have to be one of the good ones because you, for a variety of reasons, couldn't be, do you consider yourself to have a global audience or are you working within for lack of a better term, your own demographics to affect change there? Or are you looking wider? I don't know. I mean, I think that some of the things that I talk about are universal, particularly if, if you've been socialised as a girl. Um, and some of the things that I discuss as well, I think, transcend barriers of race and gender and, you know, even economics to a degree, um, or class, I should say. It's a tricky one because I think when I was younger and I was kind of, you know, so stalwart, enthusiastic feminist and I was like, I'm out there saying all of these things, I just had this very... Um, and it was arrogant, but it wasn't, like, deliberately arrogant. And I'm not saying that to excuse myself. I think it's just the arrogance of youth. And the arrogance of, that comes from having a very small perspective that you think is large because it feels larger than the people around you. And so you don't ever kind of go, oh, well, but it could be this much bigger. I had this, this sort of belief, I think, that when you talked about women's rights, you were talking about women's rights everywhere. And the process of... I guess kind of ex sort of realising that, um, you know, in, in parts, like, the older you get, the, the, the more you realise you don't know as well, and the more willing you are, hopefully, to learn from people with better ideas and with more experience, because every part of life should be about gaining knowledge and, and expanding your understanding and becoming a better person. Um, 
But I think that, I think I would say that I've got, in some aspects, a global audience, just in terms of who consumes my stuff. And that they would probably mostly form one de demographic with some like outliers to that. Uh, but also, I guess, I'm trying to be really careful about um, not presenting myself as an answer to anything. You know, it always makes me uncomfortable when people describe me as like, it's gonna sound so fucking wanky, but go on. <laughs> no, when they're like, oh, she's like a feminist icon or whatever, you know. <laughs> no, I'm making a joke. Because I feel like I'm not, I don't want to be that. And I don't want anyone to think that I think that I'm the feminist with all of the answers. That I, this person who has like an extraordinary level of privilege in so many different layered ways, could possibly be, you know, the answer or an answer to the feminist dialogue. I'm just... It's, I know that it's something that I care a lot about, and I know I care about women in particular. And I guess I'm just, oh, this is gonna sound cheesy, but I'm just out here trying to do my bit, just trying to be my part of the puzzle, knowing that there are so many other people who, who, who work towards what it is that we're working towards. I'm just like one piece in the machine. You say you're not the answer, but I have been listening to your podcast, Dear Clementine, <laughs> where you do answer a lot of questions from people asking for advice. And there's also a whole chapter in your new book with this theme as well, so I have to touch on it. Leave your husband. <laughs> it's a real, it's a recurring theme that I've noticed. Yep. And it's one of my passion projects. Yes. I... I don't have a husband. I'm fairly sure I never Congratulations. will. Congratulations. Um, Cheers to that. <laughs> Cheers. I also do not have a husband. Cong Cheers to me. Well, you make quite a compelling argument to leave one's husband. So for anyone in the audience who has a husband or is in an um, almost happy marriage, would you like to make your case? I have very strong feelings about this topic. And I preface it by saying that, not that I ever feel the need to kind of disclaim on anything I say. Uh, well, no, that's not true. Sometimes I do feel the need to put a disclaimer. But on a subject like this, where you're dealing with something that is so predominantly part of the dominant society. I don't ever feel the need to disclaim, well, I'm sure your marriage is great, or, you know, marriage is great for some people, whatever. All marriage is bad. <laughs> and the reason that I say that, it's, it's easy to think that I'm making a joke, but I'm 100% dead serious. The reason that I say that is not because I think, this is the slight disclaimer, it's not because I think that relationships are bad, although, statistically speaking, if you're a woman partnered, if you're a cis woman partnered with a cis man, or maybe anyone partnered with a cis man, I'm not sure, but a cis woman partnered with a cis man, regardless of whether or not you're heterosexual, if you are living in a coded heterosexual relationship, your domestic workload will go up the instant that you cohabitate, 
and his will go down. And that is regardless of whether or not you're married. And in fact, I was looking at a study recently that showed it was a surgical exam result study for American surgeons who, I mean, surgeons. Like, you're going to talk about Dr. Jordan B. Peterson. He's just a fucking word, word doctor, you know? So surgeons. And surgeons in America, when, when they, the, the, these researchers looked at the exam results for these different demographics of people, the highest scoring surgical exam result holders were unmarried women without children. And the second highest group was unmarried men without children, followed very closely behind, as in almost indis indistinguishable on the chart, by married men without children, and then followed very closely behind that, almost indistinguishably, by married men with children, and then way down on the chart by married women without children, and then even further below that, married women with children, to the, to the extent that it was something like 90% pass rate for unmarried women without children, and then the men all hovered somewhere in the 80s. The married women without children were 75%, and the married women with children were 55%. So automatically, the married women without children had taken on such a degree of domestic labor that all of those men, regardless of the change in their circumstances, were benefited by it. Only slightly higher did the un... No, in fact, sorry. The married men without children had the slightly higher pass rate than the unmarried men with no children. So we know that domestic... I mean, that's just one example. Domestic labor is you know, statistically increases for women the moment they cohabitate with a man. And that's probably regardless of whether or not they're in a romantic relationship. Even if you move in with a male housemate, you probably find that your workload goes up. Um, the moment that you have children, things go to shit. And, and you're trapped. And um, that's not funny. It's not. You're trapped economically because all of a sudden, because of how the system works, the system needs women to be, uh, to commit themselves and to aspire to heterosexual partnerships with men who they will have children with because this is a romantic dream and who they will take care of and they will perform domestic service to despite the fact that women in those situations die earlier than unmarried women and child-free women. They need them to do that so that I just gonna, I just felt a burp bubbling up. That's how ma mad this makes me. Um, they need women to do that so that men continue to succeed in public life. And the, the capitalist benefit that is, or the benefit that is gained by capitalism because women have been successfully seduced by this idea of romantic partnership that is codified by government legislation is extreme. So th that is the reality that we're living in now. Women are unhappy in their marriages and they can't leave because they're economically tied to men who don't support them emotionally or financially or physically, who often subject them to violence. Um, 
if not just generic kind of sexual coercion, the fact that when you're un if you have a chronic illness as a woman, you're warned about the fact that your male partner might leave you because that is common, because you're not taking care of him anymore. The fact that you know so many women will have a baby and submit to submit to sex that they don't want to have because they've, they've been told, well, you need to make sure that he's taken care of or it's been six weeks. It's been six weeks. And the doctor said that you'd be ready after six weeks. And add to all of that the child labour that, you know, that women's careers suffer when they have children, men's careers exponentially benefit. What is it that is drawing us to marriage? If not for this very successful campaign that has been conducted over hundreds of years, not, not so much hundreds, but like a couple of hundred, a hundred of years, because prior to this, marriage was all about property transaction. Marriage wasn't like a love thing. You weren't like, oh, I'm going to meet my guy and we're going to fall in love and I'm going to marry my best friend. <laughs> my best, I can't wait to spend the rest of my life with my best friend. What does your best friend know about you, Sandra? Probably not a lot. <laughs> So it was all about property transac transaction, all about creating heirs so that property could be passed down through lines, al alliances could be made, or if you were really, really poor, just so that you could have some kind of economic support and advantage. There are, cult uh, like, there are communities in the world where wives are shared amongst brothers because there's not enough money to have one wife. And it is a system, if you're talking about an oppressive system, marriage and the historical context of marriage is a system that has oppressed billions of women throughout history, and not just oppressed them, but I'm going to get dark here and, and talk about some violent things, but that is like supported marital rape. It was it's only in the last 50 years in Australia, I'm not sure what the laws are like here, but it's only in the last 50 years in Australia that marital rape was technically outlawed. So why would suppose, if the feminist project has been so successful at empowering women and at telling us that we can do and be anything that we want and it, in actually supporting us to do those things, if the reality was that we were actually supported to do those things, why would so many women be willingly signing themselves up to enter an institution that had raped billions of their foremothers, that had forced them into reproductive labor, that had killed them through childbirth or through domestic abuse and violence, that had essentially traded them like chattel, like animals, to codify and protect male power and economic wealth. At what stage did we all suddenly go, oh, but it's romantic now. It's about love. And then, of course, like enter into it and go, it's actually not about love because I don't feel very loved by this person. And maybe have the realization that it's about status because society still says to the married woman, you are slightly better than the unmarried woman. You've been chosen. Now you can be chosen by a woman, but we'd still prefer you to be chosen by a man. And you can post all of your photos everywhere and you can have this one day because as a woman, of course, you're only allowed to be the center of attention on your wedding day. And that is the day when you can wear a pretty dress and you can, have, you can pay for a makeup artist and you can come and take a bunch of photographs and 
And no one will say to you that you're being greedy. No one will say to you that you're, you know, you're just an attention seeker because you're allowed to have that attention. You're not allowed to have attention for the things you care about. You're not allowed to have attention for the man who groped you on the tram. That's just attention seeking. But you're allowed to have attention if you're getting married. And it's also the one day where a lot of women, not all, but a lot of women can trust that the man they have decided to pledge their life to, who they will care for the children of, and who they will do nice things for, and whose birthday they will remember, stands up in front of everyone they know and says, yeah, I love her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's been all right. You know, it's like, I just think that if, you, if we lived in a world that said to women, you can be happy by yourself and take lovers and you can have relationships and you can even have children. If you, if you have the capacity to have a child, regardless of whether or not you are a woman or not, if you have the capacity to have a child and you're physically able to do that and, we, and if we want to, you know, taking it to the kind of the survival of the fittest or whatever, survival of the species, I should say, we need people who can have children to have children. And yet we've created this, in, this situation where we say to them, but you're only, you can only legitimately have them under these circumstances. And that is if you sign up to capitalism and patriarchy and heteronormativity for the most part. You can't actually do it by yourself. So the number of people I've spoken to who've said, oh, I, I really wanted to have kids, but I never met the right person. Like, you would never say, I really wanted to climb Mount Everest, but I just didn't get the right boyfriend to do it with, you know? <laughs> but again, like, economically speaking, if we lived in a world that said, we're going to allocate sufficient funding and we're going to really invest in the next generation of humans, where not only will we support the people who give birth to those humans, but we will support them through early childhood education, we'll support them through care provision, will support them through programs that support the parent, the birth parent or the mother. We will value this as a job and as a contribution to society and we'll make it clear that you don't need to, like, you don't need to, like, uh, open yourself up to economic risk by partnering with someone who might fuck you later on, fuck you over then we would all be in a much better position. And women in particular would be free to live, to live lives where they were the agents of those lives, where they were autonomous, where they could go out and do the things that they wanted. They wouldn't be able to do everything they want because having children is a sacrifice in some way. But they would be able to live lives on their own terms and they wouldn't get to 50. This is when I left my son's dad, who is a great dad, he really is. And we function very well as a family now with no romantic obligations. But I thought to myself, I don't want to wake up at 50 and feel like I've just, you know, waited one more day, or I've just, like, done the right, the right thing. Why is the right thing always something that subjugates women's happiness? I told you I can just talk yeah. for minutes on end. Yeah, well, have fun talking about that when you get home <laughs> with your partner. I would just say to anyone in the, in the room who's listening to this, who is unhappy, who is 
I always say this, if you've been looking for a sign, <laughs> this is the sign. Mary Oliver, the great poet Mary Oliver, says, concludes her poem, The Summer Day, tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And I know that there are people, and definitely women sitting in this, in this audience tonight, who feel scared by what that means, because I felt scared by what that meant. What does it mean to blow up your life? Your one wild and precious life. When you think about it, and you allow yourself to think about it and confront it, and all the difficulty that might come from it, you still always end up at this conclusion, which is that you don't want to get to your deathbed, whether or not that's tomorrow, or when you're 95, and think, I played it safe. You've got one life, one life. Why give it to other people? It doesn't mean that you, you can't care for those other people, but your children eventually will grow up and leave home. And there's nothing worse for a child than being raised in a house with parents who hate each other. You know, the, people say, oh, divorce is bad for kids, but divorce is only bad for kids if the parents are toxic to each other. And so another thing that I always say to young women in particular who are in their 20s, and when you're in your 20s, you always feel like everything is so <sighs> paramount. You know, you're like, I've got to get my life in order now. I've got to have my career on track. I've got to be, you know, I've got to find the person that I'm going to end up with. You think about relationships. And maybe young people are different now, I hope so. But when I was young, you thought about relationships as like, I've got to find the person. I've got to find the person to start the life with. And then, oh, my God, I can relax. <laughs> get to 35 and I can relax. And what, you're just going to relax for the next 50 years? <laughs> We don't allow for the fact that even if you're deeply in love with someone when you're 25, that by the age of 35, you might want something different. You know, you might, they, and they might not have done anything wrong. You just might have grown apart. Like, you change so much over the years that, and it's your life. You're allowed to explore it the way that you want. You're allowed to own it for yourself. So many women think, well, I've got to live my life for other people. I've, I've got to do the right thing. But if you, if there are any young women in the audience or any, any young person who is capable of growing a baby and might want to do that, I would suggest as the best piece of advice, if you want to do it with someone, to choose someone who you think will be a good co-parent with you if and when you separate. <laughs> I'm serious, like have that conversation with them. If and when we break up, how do we parent our child together? Because that is, the, that is the test that will, you can raise children in happy, loving partnerships that are non-romantic, but a child will experience and feel every bit of the toxicity that is shared between their parents, whether or not they're married or whether or not they're divorced. And be, just staying together for the kids won't do anything for them if you fucking hate each other. So I want to get a little bit personal because this book is very personal. Boys will be boys, and I suppose probably fight like a girl a little bit. They felt they felt like they were filled with a sort of barely suppressed rage, <laughs> and this one felt like you enjoyed writing it. Mm. It felt a lot more 
maybe fun to write, even though there is a lot of um, sadness and heartbreak in it. And I, and maybe it's just the gay in me speaking, but I thought that the most romantic relationship within the book, very mild spoiler if you haven't read is it, it Billy? is with the woman you did not have a romantic relationship Billy? with. Billy? Yep. Yay for Billy. Um, She's the one I was listening to the messages. I was saying to oh. Mads before, I was, she, uh, she came into the green room and I was listening to some audio messages. That was from Billy. Oh my God, a star. Um, well, you speak about her. Her name is really very clever, yeah. <laughs> clever pseudonym there that I gave her. You speak about Billy so lovingly, and it is romantic in the beginning, and then there is a decision made for it not to be romantic. But then it almost continues to be romantic without the sex. Mm. It's kind of this amazing uh, endorsement of female friendships as partnerships that just happen to not have sex in them, essentially. Is that how you, is that how your relationship with Billy has continued to this day? It, so if you haven't read the book, the chapter that Mads is talking about is called Every Single Moment of Our Time. And it's about a, one of the great loves of my life, who in the book is called Billy O'Reilly, but who in reality is called Libby O'Donovan. And, <laughs> very clever name, as I said. Libby and I are doing a show at the moment, which we've done two, two versions of it, um, and we've decided to take it on tour. So we're, we're touring it in Australia in October, and very hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be able to bring it to Aotearoa. Uh, but Libby is just one of my great life's joys. We met, we went to the same school, but we didn't meet at school and we met at an, uh, an, a gig that I was performing at, um, a very gay gig that I was performing at in Adelaide back in 2010. And we just started chatting and it, you, yeah, it, it, it could have been romantic, it could have been sexual. And there is a hint of sex in our relationship. Um, but I, I have always been a kind of, scared is the wrong word, I, I don't, I don't really, find <laughs> it quite difficult to talk about. That's to the extent that I find intimacy quite difficult. I don't like feeling obliged to people. I don't like feeling, I, I never kind of really wanted to have an all or nothing relationship, you know? When I, in the past, when I've kind of like daydreamed about, you know, wanting to find someone or whatever, it's always been, I think, because I just thought that that's what people did. Um, and I really like having lovers, but I love myself more than anyone, you know, as, as, a, as a lover. Like, I love my own time, I love my space, I love being able to leave at the end of whatever and going home to my own bed, you know? I like, I, I just, I think at heart, I'm a very solitary person and I'm really very pleased that I figured that out so young. So Libby is someone who I had a 
like a very intense love affair with when I was 30, about 12 years ago. We fell in love with each other and decided to not go there because we knew that that, well, I knew. I think Libby wasn't thinking as like forwardly as that. Um, but I just knew that, I know that sex can ruin stuff. And in the book I say something like, in fact, I, I might just read it out quickly. Yeah, go for it. Because I think that a lot of people don't hear this. And I feel like, we sh like more of us should hear this. Um, here we go. I'm amazed how quickly you found that. Ah, oh, it's like <laughs> touch memory. <laughs> Uh, when you close the door on sex with someone, you find in its place an entire structure you hadn't realised was there, rising up out of the foundations you'd built. Suddenly there are entire rooms to explore, windows to throw open, kitchens to sit in and sofas to slouch on. Sexual intimacy exists in a tiny space, a cramped flat of a shared life in which everything lives in such close proximity that you can never zoom out to see what your world could look like. Platonic intimacy is more liberating, less restrictive all the places you'll go. <laughs> I just feel like, and, and for anyone, like there's lots of you here who would have deep friendships, but who maybe, and maybe you, think of them in, maybe you think of them in this way, and I hope you do, but maybe you haven't yet, because the culture tells us that the pinnacle of a relationship is a romantic one, that that, that is what we should aspire to, to service all of our romantic, intimate needs. When actually, I think in reality, particularly if you mostly or always partner with men, and again, I don't offer disclaimers generally, but like no disrespect to the men in the room, I think women's deepest relationships are with each other. Their deepest soulmate experiences are with each other. They're the ones that they think of at the end of the day. You know, who can I confide my, my deepest fears to? It's, it's your friends, if you're lucky enough to have the, that kind of friendship. And sex complicates all of that because sex puts up a barrier between, I think, sex puts up a barrier between our true, intimate, honest selves and this performance of sexual intimacy that we've kind of all been co-opted into. So when Libby and I knew that this, we could have tipped over into just having a, a physical love affair, and I was like, no, I think that our friendship is too important for that. You know, we like also have these fucking annoying phrases like the friend zone. Like, like the worst thing is being someone's friend. <laughs> like if you can't fuck them, then oh God, I'm being put in the friend zone. Like you're, you're gonna be more intimate with someone in the friend zone than you possibly will be in the sex zone. Um, and so anyway, so Libby got married and I didn't see her for about nine years, which is sort of, I'm not gonna go into that, but then now she's not married anymore and that's her story to tell, but she's not married anymore. And as soon as she was not married anymore, she came back to her friends and uh, I think people can read between the lines of what I'm saying about that. And please don't repeat that because I shouldn't have said anything on stage. Um, <laughs> but she came back to her friends and now she and I, are, it's like no time has passed. 
you know, that's how you know that someone is true, truly a love of your life when you cannot see them for nine years and then you, you reconvene and it's just like nothing has happened to change that level of... Inter like, there's no small talk between us at all. She's just the best. I could call her right now, <laughs> put her on the microphone. She'd say, Clunge! That's her nickname for me. <laughs> How many loves have you had, do you think? Genuine love of your life? I would say... I've had... Are we including, like, non-romantic loves? I think I've been extremely lucky that I've had... Uh, at least five, which sounds like a small number, but when you think about it, when you think about your genuine, true loves of your life, most people are trained to think that they're only chasing one love, and they're lucky to find it, you know. Oh, if I could just find the one. This idea that like somehow you're born and some celestial fucking thumb <laughs> imprints your head and one other person's head in the world of billions of people. And like I'm just looking for the one, you know? We're really, again, this goes back to this marriage thing that we've been brainwashed into thinking that there's one person out there and we just need to find them, you know? But there's, maybe there's, a lot of people, when I say that I've had five genuine loves of my life, I hope to keep adding to those, you know? I think that there's people that I've loved for years and years and years, and there's people that I met in the last two years who've become soulmates. I think you know when you meet someone that this is, this is a meeting of something special. So you're saying you're not going to get married? <laughs> I would never, ever, ever get married. I'm ever, saying, ever, ever. If you ever did, it would be like finding out Marie Kondo is a hoarder or something. <laughs> it would just be, it would be amazing. Be the biggest wedding in the world. You know, I, I would never get married. <laughs> I don't, I don't. My views on marriage are really strong, and I'll share with everyone here, even though it's. It's not officially announced yet, but my next book will be about anti-marriage. Oh. It's, a, it's an argument against I marriage. I didn't want to ask because I thought you weren't allowed to talk about it, but great. Well, I'm, I will be writing a book laying out an argument about why marriage is bad for women in particular, but also bad for everyone. Well, no, it's actually really good for cishet men, but um, <laughs> that's why it's bad for women. I don't... I would never say to a woman who got married, though, oh, well, you're a fucking idiot, you know, <laughs> or, like, what's wrong with you? Because we all operate in a system. There is a reason why women get married when it is so demonstrably bad for them as a collective and, and poses so much risk to them. And that reason is not romance. That reason is not, like, well, we just keep trying despite it all. That reason is fucking marketing. It's patriarchy's marketing to women. There's, there's nothing to recommend 
when you really like look down into it, there's nothing to recommend marriage to people. But I do think that we should always be open to love, whether or not that's romantic love or love between friends or love between, you know, one of my favorite stories is, and my favorite memories is this moment when I was, I was about 25 years old, I think, and I was in Adelaide still, and I was at Adelaide University, and I was walking through the campus, and the Elder Conservatorium of Music is there. And I was just walking past, ordinary day, probably about like 11.30 in the morning, and as I walked past the practice room, I heard the first bars of Claire de Lune coming out through the window. Now, Claire de Lune's like one of the most recognizable classical pieces in the world, but it's also a lot of people's favorite for a good reason, and that's it. It's beautiful. And I stopped to listen to this person playing the piano. And as I stopped, I didn't start it, but like just as I stopped, the music compelled maybe about six or seven other people within the next 10 or 15 seconds to also stop and listen. And it was the, it's the kind of thing where if you put it in a movie, it would be too on the nose. You'd be like, this is cheesy. But life is cheesy. And so all of these people stopped, and we just kind of were looking at the ground as, as you know, other people. It was like a thoroughfare, so all these people were walking past us. And this person's playing, and then the final bars come through the window. And we all look at each other, and we all sort of smile shyly and really feel the magic of that moment that we shared this one thing. In the same way that, you know, when you're walking home at night and there's a fucking spectacular sunset. You see a sunset every day, but like the spectacular sunsets make you all stop and look up and go, look at that. Isn't life amazing? Isn't it incredible? Did you see that sunset? You text to each other. <laughs> Here's a sunset, you took a photo on Instagram and it never looks the same. <laughs> but you all want to know that you've witnessed it and been part of it. And I think about that story all the time because the person who was playing the piano had no idea that these people were joined together in this like four minutes just sitting outside listening to them practice. And I think that that's like a really good metaphor for love as well, that you just happen to be in a place at a time and you meet a person or people and you share a moment and that moment can last for 30 minutes, or it can last for five years, or it can last for a few dates, or it can last for like a lifetime of friendship. Whatever it is, you're just lucky enough to be there. So it's not about like doing the right thing to meet the right person. It's just about being lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And to know that the love that you are looking for as a human in the world is so much more expansive and possible than the love that you've been told matters. You've brought back, you've brought it back to a, a more hopeful clap. place. Yeah, sorry, I'll let them clap. I'm just aware of the time. I've been looking at your Apple Watch <laughs> this whole time. You also got a Reddit notification. Are you on Reddit? Oh, I'm on Reddit to follow. Um, just, I'm on a pro Amber Heard Reddit page that okay. just shits on Johnny right. Depp. We do not have time so. to get into that. We've only got about five Fuck minutes Johnny Depp. left. Don't buy Dior. <laughs> um, I was 
gonna say, you brought it back to a hopeful place, but there is definitely at least one married woman in the audience going, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> You're not an idiot, but it's also not too late. <laughs> I guess I'll end, sorry everyone, we're almost finished, so there will be no audience questions, but feel free to ask them at the book signing. Um, I did want to ask, you, you have these two books that are, that feel almost like a, a duty to write, and then you have a book that feels very, a bit more hopeful and personal, and you write about still having this kind of rage that goes along with love and finding out how to love yourself and what you do to make you happy and all of these things. And it ends quite hopefully. Are you happy? I'm really happy. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I'm a really happy person. Um, I'm incredibly lucky to have people in my life who share my life philosophy. I've never felt uh, on the periphery of my intimate circle in that their lives are super different to mine, you know. But they're simpatico and I think that everyone should seek to have simpatico in their life. I love my son, I love being a mother. I also acknowledge that being a mother is fucking hard, boring work. Um, and I don't feel the need to sugarcoat that or say that like it's the greatest thing that I've ever done. It's the hardest, thing I've ever done because it requires a complete sacrificing of the ego and it's the worst love in that you you fall so deeply into it knowing that your job is to send it on its way and no there is no other love that I can think of where we ask to feel it so profoundly and know that we have to let it go. And that they will never love us the way that we love them. <laughs> no, and nor should they, nor should they. Like it is, they, they'll, they'll love their children the way that we love them. And the cycle goes on. And it's, you've experienced it from both sides, which is sort of like why the first chapter is about my mum and me as a child saying goodbye to her when she died. And then the last chapter is about me becoming a mother and experiencing those two sides of, of the same kind of love. Um, I think that I have done a lot of work of acceptance as well, you know. So there's so much in the, this book in particular about self-work and about how, you know, we spend so much time being so mean to who we were as young kids, as young adults, as adolescents, like, and particularly, particularly women, I think, are so trained to use the worst, meanest words against themselves. And look, I'm not a, a man, so I, I can't speak for men. Maybe men have the same experience of just being so, like, horribly hateful to themselves. But the language that society equips women to use in particular is really, really aggressively hateful. You know, ugly, pointless, useless. It's like Muriel's wedding, but like yourself saying it. You're all useless, you're useless. Um, and I, when I was writing this book, 
I, because a lot of it happens at different ages. And when, you, when you're a writer, I'm sure there are writers in the room, when you're a writer, you can't, you can't write a good story if you are just persisting with self-deprecating jokes. There has to be some pathos in there and there has to be some understanding of the, the protagonist, which in this case, if you're writing a memoir, is you. So I had spent years being self-deprecating towards myself and making sure that I could run as fast as possible from who I was so that no one I ever met would ever associate, associate me with past me's. And then when I was writing this, I was like, actually past me's were pretty amazing and they survived a lot of stuff and they kept going and they kept going in the hope that one day it would be better and I am living the better life. So how can you, if you've benefited from their hard work, their hard work and their bravery and courage, and you are living the life that they dreamed of having one day, how can you turn around and say, oh, look at that ugly little thing? It just feels so mean. Once you externalize all of your past selves in that way and you think you dealt with stuff that would fell other people, but also you were a kid, or you were like 20, or you were 25 or whatever, like, and you did it and you weren't as equipped as, I am equipped because of you. I'm, I am who I am because of what you did for me and for us. So how can I possibly ever say anything mean about you ever again? And it's really, it was really radically life-changing. And I know like therapists do this kind of like childhood self stuff with people all the time, but not everyone does that work. When you think about all of these people who were you, just stretched out into your past holding hands and looking at where you've gotten, looking at where they've gotten you and cheering for you, we made it. You have to thank them for it. And you have to look forward to the future at all of the other yous who are still yet to come and say, I'm doing this for you. We're all in this together. And I think thinking of myself as an infinite number of different versions of me has been one of the most profound and powerful realizations of self-love I've ever had. And it makes me, it makes me conceive of where I've been and where I'm going to in a completely different way than I ever did before. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you. Can we give a, I mean, you're already doing it, but give a warm hand for Clementine Ford. Thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you. Thank you to Matt Chapman <laughs> as well. Uh, Clementine will be outside this door signing books for a limited time. So buy a book. If you buy two, you get to ask two questions. That's the rule. <laughs> um, but otherwise, Faftai Telelava, thank you all and uh, have a good night. Danakwe. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki.
You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.